Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is part of the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of locally based, locally produced, locally focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. We're grateful to our Season 3 sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in the Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. today's episode, we meet authors Miriam Heron and Christy Alexander Hallberg, who came to Charlotte for a North Carolina Literary Review reading event at Park Road Books. This episode includes their stories about Cambodian refugees and mercy, Christy's story about Freddie Mercury, the star of the rock group Queen, and readings from Miriam's award-winning book, A Stone for Bread, a literary mystery about a collection of poems allegedly saved from a Nazi death camp. We open the show with two readings, the first from Miriam's award-winning short story, Lucky, which was inspired by her work in Charlotte for an inner-city program for teenage children of Southeast Asian refugee families. We follow with Christie's story, Fistful of Mercy. Lucky. It was not usual for Chim Soka to address Buddha and so forthright a manner, but on this day she told him, I need Samnangal, my good luck. She repeated her need so Buddha would understand how urgent this was. To direct his attention, she laid a banana and a saucer of beer before his picture. I need it only for this morning, she added, should Buddha think her greedy. Not that she was a stranger to Samnangal. She was born in the goat year in 1931, under the dragon sign, a fortunate birth. My beautiful lucky girl, her father would say when she was a child in Cambodia, but today she might need the extra prayers. Soka bowed before the shrine. On the wall behind her, Jesus, printed in bright colors on velvety cloth, stretched his arms toward the Buddha. The back wall of the living room belonged to Jesus. The front wall was Buddha's. In America, one needed both. She finished her prayers and went to her bedroom, slipping into the black polyester slacks and white blouse spread neatly on the bed. She smoothed her gray hair with a comb. Reaching to the back of the closet, she felt for her purse, hidden in a box of old shoes, then counted out six-dollar bills, enough for a bag of rice, perhaps even a bottle of cola. The store was two blocks away, down Cumberland Avenue and to the left. The store wasn't Asian, but Mr. Franks, a white man, carried a few Asian foods now that as many Lao, Cambodians, and Montagnards lived on Cumberland Avenue as black people. 
Mr. Frank stocked one half, one shelf with jasmine rice, Asian sauce, and noodles. Chim Soka rarely went to Mr. Frank's store, and she had almost never walked there alone. Even when Salk drove her there, the place made her stomach quiver. Men loitered outside, drinking beer, most of them black. Sometimes they spoke words to her in English she did not understand. She worried they were laughing at her or making threats. But this morning, Salk called from the factory and said they asked him to work another half shift and possibly stay longer. He had already worked all night, and she knew when he got home he would want to sleep. But tomorrow was the festival of prayers for the dead at the temple. She needed to prepare food for the monks. Chimsoka folded the six $1 bills and slid them in a pocket sewn under the waistband of her slacks, then padded barefoot to the kitchen to find her cloth market bag. The house was small, but new, and she was proud of her house. A church called Habitat for Humanity had built it for them, though Salk helped with the construction whenever he was off work. Sometimes Salk went to church on Sundays. Church was what Cambodians call Christian meetings. Salka did not go to church. She had tried it once and found it frightening. That church was in an old movie theater with broken seats. She did not like the man they call Pastor Lee. Even though he was Cambodian and spoke in the Khmer language, his words were angry. He reminded her of Anka, the Red Khmer, during the evil time in Cambodia. Pastor Lee warned that Buddha was a devil. He described a dungeon called hell where Buddhists would suffer horrible torments. Had not Buddhists suffered enough? She wondered why Jesus and Buddha could not just get together and talk about ways to reward Khmer people in the next life for what they had endured in this one. What had also bothered her about church was the music. They sang American songs, noisy like the songs on the radio, accompanied by twanging guitars and booming drums. She preferred the quiet of the temple, the serene eyes of the golden Buddha watching her from a round Khmer face. Buddha was the source of her Samnangal, luck. She had not returned to church, but some Khmer people came by her house and talked to her about Jesus. Their Jesus seemed kinder than Pastor Lee's. Their Jesus had also suffered because of cruel people. At least Salk did not go to Pastor Lee's church. One day when Salk drove her to the Asian store, she made him stop the car at a street corner where a man was selling black wall cloths with pictures printed on them. Most were Americans, like Martin Luther King and Elvis Presley and President Kenny, Salk had explained. She had Salk buy one of Jesus, which she hung on the wall across from the Buddhist shrine. She did not think Buddha would be offended. Soka went to the front door. She seldom left the house alone. The streets of America frightened her. All streets frightened her. But the street she most vividly remembered was in Phnom Penh, 20 years before. The young soldiers parading cheerfully along it into the city. She had been much younger then, 44, pregnant with her seventh child. She thought how she had stood on the balcony of her father's house, watching the army move past, the laughing boys with red check scarves draping their necks, rifles slung over their shoulders. This was not like any army she had ever seen. Some wore ragged black, black pajama-like pants and sandals made from rubber tires. People stood on the sidewalks and cheered. Many handed the boys flowers. Soka waved, relieved the war was over. 
Now with a new government, their lives would improve. Three days later, the soldiers came again to her street. Army trucks drove by the house, blaring commands through loudspeakers. Their voices boomed among the houses. Later that day, for what seemed no reason at all, she too was on the street, walking beside the soldiers along with her parents, her husband Kang, and their children, all six of them, the oldest son Norn with his wife and two children, hurrying away from their house in the city of Phnom Penh. Kang carried Sacha on his back while she held the baby sock. The older children and her parents took turns pushing a cart piled with sacks of belongings, kitchen utensils, rice, canned goods, tea, cured meat, clothing, a radio. Their gold jewelry was hidden in an old teapot, their money tied into scarves, which they pinned in, under their clothing. Soldiers waving guns hustled them along the street, but this time the soldiers did not laugh. One soldier shot a small brown dog that raced barking from a house, trying to follow its family. The soldier skewered the dog on his bayonet, raising it like a flag. Fistful of Mercy. I discovered the mouse the Saturday my father died. I'd seen telltale signs of it before, droppings and tufts of insulation by an air vent, an old box of cereal in the cupboard. But until then, the mouse had been a phantom, a figment of my dulled senses, an opioid-induced delusion. It darted into the hall closet while a hospital social worker delivered the news of my father's passing from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. He died alone at my childhood home in eastern North Carolina, the victim of vertigo and a recently waxed floor. The cleaning lady I'd hired after I moved to London following my divorce the previous year had found him sprawled by the kitchen counter, his hand gripping the leg of a wrought iron bar stool that had crashed on top of him, finishing the job the Italian tile had not. I'll call you back, I said impassively to the social worker. There's a mouse in my house. I attributed my apathy to shock, that and the fact that my father and I had been estranged since our last conversation a few months ago. I barely remembered the argument, the details awash in a cocktail of bourbon and coke. I could have called him back and pled innocent on the grounds of temporary intoxication, but we both knew there was nothing temporary about it, which was the subtext of most of our disagreements. A few weeks later, I received a note from him, scrawled in his palsied cursive, Aren't you going to ask for forgiveness? I'd thought of Joan Didion when I'd read it. What makes Iago evil, some people ask? I never ask. May God have mercy on your soul, my father used to say while he drowned the squirrels he caught pilfering nuts from the pecan trees in our backyard, submerging wire cages he'd borrowed from animal control into a tub of water on the patio, desperate rodents thrashing against the bars, water surging over the sides of the tub like the parting of the Red Sea. My mother and I called him Mercy behind his back. I'm cooking spaghetti for Mercy, she'd crack. There's a man on the phone, Mama. He asked for mercy. I understood the irony, even at six. She had not asked for mercy while she lay dying on my parents' white iron bed, empty pill bottle in her hand, My Sweet Lord by George Harrison playing on the stereo. It's providence, my father had said at her funeral. Providence and fate. I didn't think so, even at 14. She was an unnatural disaster, sundered not by the will of God, but Valium and Jack Daniels. She'd made her choice. Providence and fate be damned. There would be no funeral for my father. I was an only child. Most of his friends were dead, victims of old age and in you. My ex-husband had absconded to somewhere out west with the woman who'd replaced me. You were gone long before I was, he'd said to me. In fact, I don't think you were ever really here. He was right. 
I lived in liminal spaces, the césure between here and there. My father once said he wanted to be cremated. What about the rapture, I'd scoffed. Aren't you supposed to be buried with your body intact? We're Methodist, he said. We don't believe in the rapture. I'd gazed soberly at my purse, through the leather and lining, at the flask swaddled in the lace handkerchief with my mother's initials embroidered on the front. Doesn't matter, I'd said to him. He'd nodded blankly. Then you needn't be intact. After his mother's passing barely a year ago, he'd witnessed the unearthing of his own father's body. My grandmother had instructed him to move her husband next to her upon her death, which had come suddenly. The wooden coffin had disintegrated, he told me. Only bones remained. Which ones, I'd wondered. A femur, ribcage, skull, relics of a Depression-era death before embalming became the norm. I'd read that George Harrison's ashes had been scattered in the Ganges. I wondered if his son Danny had held his father's remains in his hand, sifted the ashes through his fingers, let the wind claim him, a zephyr committing dust to dust to flowing water, like music, the middle eight, the art of dying, first the fire, then the water. I hadn't asked my father what he wanted done with his ashes, scattered them in the river near the town of my birth, and now his death, like an Old Testament prophet, a sainted sinner from the book of Exodus, hold him in my hand, a fistful of mercy, and say a prayer for all our souls? Maybe he had written down his wishes, left a note in a box in his bedroom closet with my mother's empty pill bottle and other evidence of our lives, intersecting like crossroads. My first tooth, sacrificed for the nickel underneath my pillow while I slept, a lock of my mother's feral hair, a mold of my palm I'd made in grade school. I doubted it. He would have left the decision to Providence. I phoned the social worker and listened to her repeat the details of my father's passing. Tell me what to do before I arrive. Ask me where to store the shell that remains in the interim. I stared at the mouse traps I'd placed by the air vent. Kill and contain and catch and release. I let the mouse decide its own fate. I drained my glass of bourbon and coke. Now I thought, what to do for mercy? Miriam Heron has been a social worker, taught composition and literature at two universities, and three colleges and been on the editorial staffs of Good Housekeeping Magazine and the Winston-Salem Journal. Miriam's first novel, Absolution, won the 2007 Novella Press Literary Award and was cited by Publishers Weekly as an impressive debut. Her second novel, The Stone for Bread, was nominated for North Carolina's prestigious 2016 Sir Walter Raleigh Award for Fiction. An International Book Awards named it a finalist in the literary fiction category for 2016. Christy Alexander Hallberg's works have appeared in such journals as Main Street Rag, North Carolina Literary Review, Fiction Southeast, Rig Welter, Electrica, Saldego, Storgy Magazine, and Concho River Review. Christy is a teaching associate professor of English at East Carolina University and received her MFA in creative writing from Goddard College. In addition to her teaching duties, she is senior assistant editor for the North Carolina Literary Review. Uh, Miriam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Landis. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, and, and Christy, thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, now the two of you, uh, you've been on the road promoting the Doris Betts Prize winner and came to Park Road Books to do that. That's right. Yeah, and uh, while you were here, you uh, stopped by the, the podcast studio. Yeah. It's great to come here afterwards. Yeah. And, and uh, Miriam, congratulations on winning uh, the Doris Betts Prize for your piece, Lucky. Yeah. Thank you. I was lucky. Yeah, you were lucky. Well, we'll talk about lucky in just a minute. But before we do, Christy, tell us a little bit about um, the North Carolina Literary Review, who's publishing this piece, Lucky, what it does, and, and how people can find the story, the rest of the story that Miriam read. 
Well, I'll start with the last part first. You can find Miriam's story in the 2019 online version. We do two versions. Okay. So one comes out in the winter, and one in the print issue comes out in the summer, and the online version is open access. One, wow. one needs a subscription to get the print journal, but NCLR is an award-winning journal that is produced through East Carolina University, and it's been, it was founded in 1991. The first issue came out in 92, and Alex Albright was the founding editor. Since 1997, Margaret Bauer's been at the helm, and she's just done an amazing job bringing the journal along. And your role with the organization is? I am senior associate editor. But you're not at East Carolina. Yeah. I teach at East Carolina, yeah. but I live in Asheville. Right. I teach online at this point. Don't they have more square feet of breweries in Asheville than most places in North Carolina? You got that right. <laughs> <laughs> now, Miriam, you were a charlatan for many years, is that right? About 26 years. This story, Lucky, it sort of grew out of a story here in Charlotte, is that right? It did. It did. I sort of, uh, one of the things when you have a Methodist minister husband that you you find yourself in some strange places, and one was in the North Davidson neighborhood, not far from where, where we are right at this moment, where a lot of Southeast Asian refugees had settled in some pretty wretched housing. And I just happened to be down at, at, at this old church and found all these kids out playing on the, at the basketball goal. And I ended up somehow dragged into dealing with them for over six years. And uh, it was a wild, sometimes scary, and sometimes amazing. And uh, it turned into something I'm, I'm very pleased I did, although there were times I'm wondering, why am I doing this? Yeah, well, it must have influenced you enough because it came out, uh, the emotion came out in your writing of this particular piece. It did. It, it really came from that. I mean, most of these young people were and they were seventh and eighth graders, were Cambodian refugees. And I don't know that Americans still know what happened in Cambodia, which was horrifying. It's been known by some as the Cambodian Holocaust, where people were marched from the cities into the countryside and made virtual slaves of the Khmer Rouge, mm. which were horrible people. Yeah, and you only had so much time to read on, on the show here, but you did give us a you know, sort of a snippet of what's to come in this story. You've got a, a character who's dealing almost with post-traumatic stress syndrome from this terrible thing that's going on in Cambodia at that point in time, people being killed. Well, I, I refresh us on the history a little bit because you refer to the young soldiers and they're wearing scarves and they're moving people out of town and they're murdering women and children. And what what got a hold of these people. Well, it, the, Pol Pot was a dictator who suddenly, they he, they were like boy soldiers and they wore, they wore barefoot. They were like, his thing was, we're taking Cambodians back to the year one. In other words, we're starting over. And they were taking them, it's like we're going to make a, a, a kind of wonderful culture that's not like anything you've ever seen. And of course, it was horrifying. What Gen they genocide of their own people. Yeah, I mean, they, they were killing their Gen own people. It was genocide. I yeah. mean, they were, they were saying we're going to make everyone peasants. I mean, Cambodia was a very enlightened urban kind of culture. And they were going to make them into peasants and say we're going to create this new world. And it was very much communistic in, in the way they did it. And anyone who survived that must have come back from that with horrible memories. Well, I like the contrast that you build into the story between the 
the religion of America and the religion that, that this character came from. And as you move through this story, they, they can certainly read it online, as Christy said, or they can buy the print version when it comes out, too, as well. You, you find that this woman is reacting to things that someone else in the community would consider a, a car backfiring or somebody dropping something. But to her, it, it takes her immediately back to that time when they're being marched out of the city and people are being killed. How, what was it that you must have met some people that inspired you to write this piece? I met all these kids and their families. And, and did they tell you stories about what happened? Not much. They didn't like to talk about it. They didn't like to talk about it. And the kids didn't know. The kids, most of these kids were born in the, in the um, camps where the, they ended up, the refugee camps in Thailand, and then they, they were ch- small children when they came to this country. The families didn't talk much English. They didn't speak much English when I was there. They now do. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they've become acclimated to this country, and they've moved into far better housing, and a lot of them are doing very well. I've had some of those kids are college graduates and uh, so, but it's just, it was such a traumatizing experience. And this, the Senegal is an actual, I found that term of flashbacks. And, and I think soldiers have had flashbacks where you suddenly are back into the world that frightened you so. Well, we started the show here with two very happy pieces here. You know, we have, we have, we have Lucky and then we have Fistful of Mercy. Pull, pull that closer to you there. Let's talk about Fistful of Mercy just a second, Christy. Is there any um, autobiographical anything in here, or is this just a great story that you came up with? Uh, there are more autobiographical aspects to it than I should probably admit. Yeah. <laughs> it started. It what, can, started what, can, what can you admit? Yeah. I can't admit there was a mouse in my house. Oh well, <laughs> that's close. The, yeah. There was a mouse in my house, yeah. and I tried to catch it with a um, contain and release trap, and I could not catch it. So I went out and got a, um, a trap and kill, and I put them both by the air vent, and and as I say in the story, decided to let it decide its own fate. And luckily, it went into the container and that was the release container. Unfortunately, when I let it out, it was covered in the peanut butter I'd had in there, so I'm sure it was somebody's afternoon snack. Well, now, look, now Christy, this story is a little bit more than just about a mouse, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't get away that easily. Okay, you know? sorry. Yeah. 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 I and, tried. And, that's right. So, but I noticed that in this story and another story you're going to read, you have an affinity for music. Yes. You, you work in George Harrison here. We're going to mm-hmm. get to another one of your heroes in a, in, a, in a story you read a little bit later. Talk about how music connects with you and your writing. I think that was the first art form that resonated with me, and it really resonated with me. And, it, and I can't help it. I never plan it. It just finds its way into my work. For example, mm-hmm. I've, I finished a novel called Searching for Jimmy Page that's looking for a home right now. But all of my short pieces, all of my creative nonfiction pieces seem to uh, have music in them in some way, shape, or form. Hmm. And was there a particular inspiration for this story other than the mouse in your house? (laughs) Other than the mouse in my house. Well, there's a particular memory that has stayed with me, and I hope my father doesn't listen to this. He actually did drown squirrels Uh in these cages. He used to have— Maybe the statute of limitations is run on that. I I hope so. But he got these containers from animal control, and the squirrels would eat the fruit on his trees, and he would trap them and do this um, heinous thing. Yeah, yeah. 
So this might be a good time for us to do something that I'm doing in season three that I call uh, the author to author segment. This is where we have authors who were in the previous episodes of the podcast give me some questions that I can ask to authors that are in the current season of the podcast. I'm going to do this and uh, you don't know what's coming, so we'll just play that. Play that. The first couple of questions here, we'll start uh, with Rosie Molinari. She appeared in season two of the podcast. She's the author of Beautiful You, A Daily Guide to Radical Self-Acceptance from Seal Press and Ijas Americanas, Beauty, Body Image, and Growing Up Latina. One of the questions that Rosie asks is, and I'll, I'll throw this to you, Miriam, what routines and or rituals do you perform around your writing and your creating? Well, you know, when you, I've learned when you start writing. and when I, st- I started writing late in life. Uh, and when you start, you've got to have something to make you sit in the chair. And when mm-hmm. I talk to writers, I say the most important thing in our work is the chair. Because if we, we can mm-hmm. find all kinds of reasons not mm-hmm. to sit there. <laughs> so, you know, I, I started out saying, okay, I'll write three pages a day and uh, I can quit. And then, of course, you find you're writing more and more and more, and uh, you don't have to do that. And I don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. But I tell writers, when I speak to young writers or beginning writers, you do find some way. to mm-hmm. Don't let people come. They want to, They really want to take over your time. Everybody mm-hmm. will say, well, this is important. What you're doing really isn't important, mm-hmm. you know. And we have to claim that time, that what mm-hmm. we do is important and mm-hmm. say, sorry, this is my writing time, wherever it is. What about you, Christy? What, what uh, rituals do you have around your writing? I'm a morning person, so most of my writing is done in the morning. So um, what I typically do is I have an essential oils diffuser, and I'll get that going. And I have a chihuahua, and she will sit do, in my lap. Do you and get that going, too? I yeah. do. Once <laughs> I hear her snore, I know I'm, I'm set to go. Okay. Here's another question, again, from Rosie. Share us with us a specific place in your work where your art has imitated your life. Who wants to take that one? Ooh, that's a hard one. <laughs> although I didn't although, say these would be easy questions. You well, know, you know, you know my my novel is Stone for Bread. Mm-hmm. I wrote a first scene that we may talk yep. about We're later, yep. and I thought that came from nowhere. I, it's it's a scene about a child finding something. And it took me years before I realized, actually, that came from living on an army post when I was very young and looking in the woods for shell casings. But I didn't know that when I wrote it. Hmm. Christy, anything, uh, any any art uh, that you perform imitate your life? Well, as I say, I've, I've finished a novel called Searching for Jimmy Page, but it started out as a memoir. So I, I went and, and actually searched for Jimmy Page, and I found him at uh, the Hammersmith Palais, and poor guy, I chased him down the hall and make him, made him talk to me. <laughs> so when I decided that memoir was not ready for prime time, and really the story needed to be a novel, there was an awful lot of that trip that found its way into the novel. Mm. The, okay. A lot of sites I visited... Led Zeppelin-related sites I visited in here, here we come. Here we come with the music. Again, I, know, right? yeah, I, know, yeah. I know. All right, so since there are two of you on the show today, we've got two previous season authors. This one's. Uh, these questions are coming from Bren Chancellor. Bren teaches writing at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Uh, she has been a recipient of the North Carolina Arts Council Fellowship, and uh, one of her collections won the Prairie Schooner Book Prize, and her book Sycamore won the Southwest Book of the Year. You can hear her episode in, in season two. 
These are questions that Bryn says she uses to torture her students at the start of each semester. So uh, one, one of the questions is, what color would you use to describe your writing? Red or blue. And do you have a reason? Are you just throwing it out there? <laughs> um, no, I, I'm, I mean, I, blue was always my favorite color growing up, but red seems to be more like what I write. Okay. And, well, the cover of your book, Stone for Bread. It's not my choice, though. But, but it's red. <laughs> it's red. Actually, uh, my other novel was, well, it was kind of green, I guess. But What about you, Christy? Do you have a, a color that would describe your writing? The one that comes to mind immediately is gray, because mm. I like ambiguity. Mm. And, and that seems to also play a role in a lot of the, the stuff I write. Another question from Bren. What words or phrases are you obsessed with lately? Are obsessed with? Yeah, any words or phrases that, uh, that you're obsessed with? These, these are hard questions. Yeah. Well, they are, and uh, <laughs> I'm not even sure I know how to answer that because yeah. I, I want good words. I mean, yeah. I, I want words that, you know, I've had to learn how to do that. That's part of learning to be a writer is to learn the right words. And, uh, and I, I don't have... I don't think I have particular words that I use over and over. I guess another way to think about this are what words sneak into your manuscripts that you have to go pull out of there because they just always end up in there. Too many prepositions, perhaps, or too many L-Y words you have to go back and edit out, uh, those kind of things. Well, I've had to work on infinitives at times yeah, and yeah. not have too many of those, yeah, and yeah. I've had to work on uh, certain, certain kinds of phraseology, which is more about the rhythm than the words. Mm. Oh. Mm. Uh, well, here's, here's one, um, and Christy, I'll throw this one to you first. Uh, we hear a lot of tips about writing. What's the worst writing advice you've ever gotten? Edit afterward. Edit afterward. Yeah. That's Dra the worst advice or the best advice? It, it does not. It's the worst for me. It okay. does not work for me. It doesn't. I yeah. edit while I write. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll, get, I'll get the draft of, say, a, a paragraph down, but... I have trouble moving on until I go and tinker with it and feel so like I've got it where I want it. You're a perfectionist. I, I am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Slows now, me down. Now that that can be of value in places, and when you're writing shorter pieces, but start to write a long form book and editing every paragraph as you go, that's going to slow you down, right? Well, that novel took me a while to write. Okay, Miriam, what's your take on that? What's the worst advice you ever got? Oh, well, you're asking me very difficult questions. Yeah. I'm I tell you, this is not an uh, easy test you're taking. No, right? I'm not. I'm not. It's uh, um, I'm. What about uh, write what you know? Is that one of the write what you know? Maybe write what you don't know. Well, actually, I I consider that not the greatest advice. Right. And uh, <laughs> and one reason I do consider it that is, I feel like that when people say that, you're limited in what you write. And mm -hmm. I always said, you can come to know things that you write about. And that can be research, that can be visiting places, that can be seeing things, that can be reading things. So that it's really not about what we know, but what we decide to know. Mm. All right, well, pressure's off. No more uh, hard questions from <laughs> any previous season authors. Here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a short break. But listeners, when we come back, we will rock you, I assure you. So hang, hang with us. Hey listeners, I'm here at the Staff Picks Wall at Park Road Books with Nicole. Nicole, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm great. Tell us what's on your Staff Picks Wall. Um, so I have a book on my wall called Hippie Food. It's basically about the 
history of America and how it's kind of switched from white bread to wheat bread and tofu and whatnot over the past few years. Um, I also have a book called The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, which is a sort of feminist drama um, that I love a lot. Uh, there's a book called White Fur on my shelf, which is um, about class differences, um, but it's also a romance. But tell me about all these cat books. <laughs> um, so I have a cat at home, and I love her very much, and so I just kind of put a lot of cat books on my shelf that I like, that have good illustrations um, and cute little meanings behind them. And Crazy Cat Lady, are you one of those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you got uh, Catnip, what's that about? Uh, it's about um, the author, his wife was dying of cancer, and in the last year of her life, he would draw her a picture of a cat every day. Um, but the cat would normally have a quirky little personality to it, so he includes those little anecdotes. And what's this like water book? Um, it is a teen queer um, fiction book um, about a uh, 17-year-old who... Um, reunites with an old childhood friend um, and kind of discovers that she's bisexual rather than a lesbian like she had thought um, for quite some time. So you've got a lot of, you got a good variety on here, right? Uh, I, would, I would say so, yeah. All right, well, thanks for sharing all this with me. Cool, thanks. So more good stuff at Park Road Books. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, we're back, listeners, and as I promised you, it's time to rock. Uh, we've got a little little piece here that Christy's going to read that uh, might bring back some of your favorite hits of the 70s and 80s. Uh, so, Christy, take it away. I see a little silhouette of a man. I didn't know Freddie Mercury was gay when I was a teenager. Born in 1969, I missed his androgynous look of the pre-MTV 70s. Painted fingernails, eyeliner, his lithe physique working a black and white bodysuit with balletic bombast, fondling a sawed-off mic stand as if he were John Holmes. By the time MTV became every teenager's go-to channel in the early 80s, Freddie had traded in bodysuits and long hair for a chic crop cut and biker dude leathers in Queen's video for Crazy Little Thing Called Love. He may not have swaggered with the same testosterone-fueled coolness of the fawns, but he was surrounded by a chorus of half-naked women, one of whom practically rips off his white t-shirt in a wanton frenzy. To a naive young girl from a small southern town, that image screamed hyper-masculinity with a red-hot capital H, in spite of his trademark protruding front teeth. The Radio Gaga video, shot a few years later, shows a buff, brooding Freddy, oozing machismo, throwing punches at the camera as if he were pummeling his prior persona back into the 70s. I think at this point in time, if I had long hair and fingernails and wearing the things I used to wear, I would look ridiculous, Freddy told a reporter in 1984. I mean, I looked ridiculous then, but it worked, he added with a self-deprecating snicker. Androgyny was out and uber-masculinity was in. Bare-chested virility was far safer for gay artists in the AIDS-phobic America of the early to mid-80s and much more viewer-friendly. Freddie Mercury never made any sort of public statement announcing his sexual orientation. In an interview with journalist David Wigg, he gushed, I'm very happy with my relationship at the moment, and I couldn't, I really honestly couldn't ask for better. I've finally found a niche that I was looking for all my life. When Wig asked if he could report that the relationship was with a man, Freddie emphatically said, no, you mustn't. He only revealed he had AIDS the day before he died on November 24, 1991. 
I was 22 by the time that announcement came. The tabloids had been rife with tawdry stories about his suspected illness for a year or so before then, so his death probably didn't come as a surprise to me. I don't remember, though. Queen had never been on my playlist. Like most people, I sang Bohemian Rhapsody with gusto whenever it came on the radio, heedlessly mangling the lyrics in the operatic section. Beelzebub has a devil for a cyborg, me. I liked We Are the Champions and stomped my feet with the crowd at football games to We Will Rock You. But except for my 45 of Another One Bites the Dust, which I ruined along with my stereo needle trying to play the record backward in a failed attempt to hear the subliminal message, It's Fun to Smoke Marijuana, a handful of nutcase evangelical ministers claimed was audible, I didn't own a Queen record. Recently, I listened to a playback of that song on YouTube. The religious group that posted the video included subtitles, without which I would never have discerned anything beyond what sounded like a mishmash of John Cage and that backward-talking dwarf from Twin Peaks. Apparently, wanting to hear what wasn't said is grounds for subterfuge, and occasionally, anger. Now a feature film about Queen, and more explicitly Freddie, is set for release in the fall of 2018, and the same sort of controversy over straight-washing him has been ignited again. The trailer for Bohemian Rhapsody, starring Mally, Rami Malek as Freddy, includes flashes of Freddy ogling women like a horny wolf on the hunt for Little Red Riding Hood. What big teeth you have. All the better to eat you with, my dear. While Freddy did have relationships with women before coming to terms with his homosexuality, the trailer doesn't give any indication that the film will address the latter. Of course, it's only two minutes long. It can't possibly cover all the ground the film does. But it is curious that the studio marketing team chose to focus on Freddie's heterosexual encounters in the snippets they sewed together. Were studio execs afraid a trailer that showed a more honest depiction of his life would repel a certain portion of the public, namely the redneck segment who blast Queen songs at backyard barbecues but would never deign to sit through two hours of homosexual displays of affection by a flamboyant singer decked out in a leotard with a plunging neckline? Did they not realize that unlike my sheltered childhood self in the early 80s, we all know Freddie was gay, and most of us don't give a shit? Did they not consider the fact that the Trump administration is dismantling so many of the LGBTQ rights President Obama fought for, and our vice president once supported the use of federal money to treat people seeking to change their sexual behavior? Do they not have the fortitude to speak truth in the face of continued discrimination against the LGBTQ community? 27 years after his death at the age of 45, Freddie Mercury has the chance to be a full-throated voice of hope and inspiration for a new generation. And this time he needn't do it with innuendo and ambiguous videos and interviews and costumes. The trailer missed the mark, but it did spark my interest in Queen and Freddie and remind me that complacency and convenience are no excuse for denying someone his authenticity. Maybe that's a start. My iTunes playlist is now full of Queen songs, and I've finally learned the correct lyrics to Bohemian Rhapsody. Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me. Freddie once said he'd rather go to hell than heaven. Think of all the interesting people you're going to meet down there. I don't believe in heaven or hell. If they do exist, I don't think you should be condemned to either place. He seemed too capricious to linger anywhere for very long, including here on earth. He was just a few months away from death when he shot the These Are the Days of Our Lives video with Queen, and he knew it. In the black and white film, he's poignantly frail, a walking cadaver with heavy makeup to cover the obvious ravages of AIDS. At the last verse, he looks directly into the camera and sings his final message to us, and more than likely, his longtime partner Jim Hutton, the man he implored David Wigg not to reveal. 
Those were the days of our lives. The bad things in life were so few. Those days are all gone now, but one thing's still true. When I look and I find, I still love you. Every time I watch that video, I am haunted by his delivery of those lines. The purity of his voice, the sincerity, humanity, generosity, and even tranquility in his face. I wonder if a piece of celluloid, even in Technicolor, can capture that. If it can show the power he possessed to mesmerize an audience, not just with his subharmonic voice, but with his combustible charisma. A few years before Freddie died, a piece of camera equipment crashed to the floor in the middle of an interview, eliciting a round of giggles from everyone in the room. The reporter composed himself and asked Freddie, Did you know you were that explosive? Freddie looked at him askance, gave a cheeky grin, then quipped, I can make a bigger bang than that, dear. Had he watched the movie trailer, I have no doubt he would have said the very same thing. Hi, Christy. You really rocked us with that one. <laughs> you... um you obviously had a connection as a young woman to Freddie Mercury and Queen. I mean, it comes out in this piece. Well, I really didn't as a kid. It, yeah. it, I was watching a documentary quite by chance one night several months ago, and it, it was a documentary on Freddie, and I, I had really never paid much attention to Queen, and I was struck by his talent and the things that I did not know about him, what, how poignant his story is. Mm -hmm. And I knew immediately I would have to write about him. I didn't know what it would be, if it would be a short story or an essay, but I knew I'd have to write about him. But you have all these other things going on in this story. Yeah. It's not just, uh, you know, the champions that Queen was in that time period, but you bring in the LGBT community yeah. into this discussion. And it's a bit of an essay, right? You're, you're, it's you're, an essay. You're, you're taking a few shots at folks that don't support the LGBTQ community. I gave it my best shot. Yeah, good, good. Well, people probably don't realize, uh, I watched that same documentary recently, how many songs that Queens had in the top ten of all time. I mean, you got Bohemian Rhapsody, oh, yeah. which was six minutes long, they said, and nobody would ever play a song six minutes long. Right. And now they play that song all the time, right? And now there's a whole mm. movie called Bohemian Rhapsody. Crazy little thing called Love, Another One Bites the Dust, We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions, Somebody to Love, and that's just a few of them, mm -hmm. right? So, and Freddie Mercury, although he was a British singer-songwriter, he was born in Zanzibar under a different yes. name. Farouk Balsara. But he had this uh, sort of charisma, right? He sure did. Yeah. And you sort of try to use his personality in this piece to kind of make a point. If you wanted someone to take something away from this, in addition to all the great memories of Queen, what, what, do you, what are you thinking about and what do you want people to think about when they read your piece? Well, I think the, the line that I read about uh, complacency and not doing the right thing in spite of it not being easy. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, this reminded me of that, because as, as a, a straight woman, I didn't have to worry about my rights being taken away based on my sexuality. So I could watch the Live Aid performance in 1985, and Queen was phenomenal. But I could watch it and just pay attention to the entertainment. Uh, I didn't have to think about well, this person, especially years later when there were all these rumors about his sexuality and whether or not he had AIDS, I didn't have to, to worry about um, whether or not I thought he should come out and, and be an advocate for um, gay rights and AIDS research. It didn't affect me. And, and so really researching this and uh, 
learning more about him made me realize that um, he had a lot of potential to do a lot for the gay community, but at the same time, he didn't have responsibility to do his his initial his uh, full responsibility was to himself, and he decided to be what he wanted to be. I mean, at that time, it was a different. It world. certainly was. Yeah. Right, if he if he'd have come out at that time, they might have boycotted sure. music and what have you. And you get you hinted at that. That's what they do. Yeah. Might do now, but uh, you used an interesting phrase in there: straight washing. Yeah. Did, did when the film came out, you hinted at it because you wrote this before the film. Yes. Did they straight wash in the film, or did they give him some credit? Well, the critics have had a field day with the film. It. It touches on all of these elements of his life, but it, it's, there's nothing gratuitous about it. I mean, you see cocaine on the table, but you don't see anybody snorting it. You know what's going on. There's, there's innuendo. You, you see that Freddie has partners, but they don't focus on um, a, a lot of the activity that he engaged in, with a lot of the gay bars and heavy... Mm-hmm heavy use of drugs and whatnot during that time, during, during a period of his life. Mm-hmm. And um, so, no, they don't, they don't straight wash him. They focus more on the humanity of Freddie, the multifaceted aspect of Freddie, the brilliant musician that he was. Well, it's a great piece. You want to sing a little bit before you get in there? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, all right, we're, we're going we're gonna to shift now to uh, uh, our, our final piece today. It's uh, from the book A Stone for Bread by, by Miriam Heron, which uh, got a lot of awards. And um, I'm going to have Miriam read, starting first with the first chapter of that book. Chapter one. Rene was four years old when he buried a grenade in the garden behind his house. It was the summer of 1917, and there was war in France. Months before, soldiers had bivouacked in a village. When they moved on, Rene's father went to join the fighting farther north. The boy's grandparents spoke in hushed tones about Le Bouches and guns with names, Big Bertha and Albrecht, and one called the Distant Princess. Rene heard the booms from his bedroom window. He watched the sky flare with light. One morning, a line of French soldiers passed through the village. That afternoon, his grandfather buried a tin box in a corner of the barn. The box held coins, a silver vanity set, two gold watches, a jewel brooch belonging to a grandmother generations back, medals won by his great-uncle Albert in the war with Prussia. Rene held the small box while his grandfather dug. He watched him place the box in the hole, tamp down the dirt, and cover it with straw and hay bales. The next day, Rene buried his treasures, bits of metal and colored rock scavenged from the woods. His 12-year-old brother, Atan, found them in the garden a week later when his hoe sliced into the grenade. Atan's arms were blown from his body, and he bled to death quickly. Of course it was an accident. The notary who investigated sadly shook his head in reminding the family it was wartime. A dog could have dragged it in. Rene wasn't told the notary's explanation. He was, after all, a child and did not understand why his brother brother had died. What evil thing waited in ambush among the leafy turnips? Did it, too, have a name? Realization came to him only gradually, the way one's hands go slowly numb with cold. 
So, Miriam, in this first chapter that you read, we start off with a character named Rene, and uh, it's, it's in wartime, we know, and he's going to be central to the, the plot of the story. We don't know why exactly, uh, because you immediately take us to another character, a fellow named Henry Beam, and a young graduate student that's interviewing him and trying to find out about his past. And as, as I understand it, he, having read the book, by the way, I like the book, it was good, um, he publishes a set of poems, and there's a question about whether he was the author of the poems, whether he published them and plagiarized them or whatever. But what I'd like you to do is read the poem that is sort of tied to the title of the book and also central to this plot, and then we'll have, we'll have some more questions. Okay. The Mad Jew of Goosen sings of the Alsace, summer and green wheat new vines on ancient hills, a dirge for the corpses he rolls into furrows, covers with dirt. The guards taunt him, mimic his singing. One tosses something his way. Bread, the guard calls. My wife baked it this morning. The Jew lunges, pirouettes, a bony dervish, hunger mad, the guards offering inches beyond his reach. The Jew stumbles, sprawls on putrefying flesh, his own body indistinguishable from the newly dead. The guard tosses another. His comrades join the game, sailing small rounds above the prisoner's splayed fingers. The frenzied man leaps higher until at last snags down his prize and falls again to earth. Laughing, he stuffs it in his mouth and breaks his teeth on stone. All right, Miriam, that's a, that's a horrible image, and you've uh, got some other <laughs> images that are hard to deal with in this book. But So why why take poetry as the object of the story and build a mystery around it? What possessed you to do that? Uh, this is one of those things I don't know where it came from exactly. Um, I just, uh, I'm not a poet either. I've always said I'm not a poet. In fact, when I wrote the book, I put a lot more poetry in it, and one editor who read it said, uh, you're not a poet. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I took a lot of it out and just left the few pieces that worked. But it it just sort of one of those things that uh, the character just sort of grew on me. I, I And I ended up with three characters, and I interspersed. One is Renee. One is Rachel, the young graduate student who meets Henry Beam. And Henry Beam's the one who says these were poems saved from a concentration camp. But he was assumed earlier on when he was a younger man that he had maybe plagiarized them or he had written them like himself because mm -hmm. he published them. Right. Uh, so, the, so, so the mystery is, you know, where did he get them? How did he find them? So we, we go back in his backstory, and he's in France, and he's living during sort of tumultuous times and some political activities, runs into some different people, and eventually – you know, without giving the plot away, he's going to connect with Rene at some point in the story. He does. He and does then that's connect. when we start learning more about Rene's backstory. And then it, so, hey, hey listeners, you're just going to have to read the book to find out what happens. But uh, I, will, I will ask this. You have this young Ph.D. trying to solve this mystery. Did you sort of feel like you were that person as you wrote this book? <laughs> trying to figure out what, where this was going to go. Well, you know, that may be the way writers work, particularly yeah. novelists. We yeah. don't always know where we're going. Uh -huh. and, uh, but, uh, you know, I wrote this book and then rewrote it and then rewrote it and then rewrote it. And so eventually it emerged in this form. Uh, I never do things easily when I write. And, uh, in fact, I wrote a whole lot more that 
you know, sometimes it had to be changed and things. But um, well, it just sort of, Rachel was not the, the first time I wrote it, Rachel wasn't in it. It was another female character. And I took the story off into crazy places. And I finally came out and said, no, no, Rachel is important, but not dominant. So you, you made a statement here that, you know, uh, we need to make sure everybody understands this. Writing is not easy, right? It is not easy. <laughs> and it both, is not easy. both of you, Christy and uh, Miriam, you're you're both teachers. You you teach students how to write, um, and you know when you do that. I mean, maybe this is a little time we can just have a little bit of uh, class time here for a second. When you're trying to teach someone about writing, what are some of the basic things you tell them? I mean, just jump in. I'm not really a teacher now. I used to teach, well, but that, I'm, that, that counts. Now. But I do that, I do that, seminars yeah. and I do work with right. workshops and things like that. But draw on your experience here. We're trying to, so as you as as young writers are trying to jump into into picking up, well, probably not a pen, but a keyboard nowadays. What advice would you give them? Well, I, I first say the most important thing is the chair. You have mm-hmm. to find time to write because everybody's busy, mm-hmm. and we all are. We, we can find plenty of excuses not to write, and we can pretend we're writing sometimes when we're not because mm-hmm. it's just, it's extremely difficult to sit down and sit there when nothing's coming. That's my first advice. And then my other advice is have people in your life who love you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, notwithstanding uh, what and, you put in front of them and force them to read. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. I talk to groups. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of library things in Charlotte and all you know, I, I tell them, you know, you, you really aren't going to necessarily get rich and famous because mm. people start out with real grand dreams. Right, and, uh, right. Pu- but, pu- publish it. They don't necessarily come. Yeah. No, they don't come. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and I don't use write what you know. I, I say, you know, learn, you know, write, learn what you're going to write about or, mm-hmm. what, or you can learn what to write about. And, uh, you know, um, what about you, Christy, from your experience? Uh, what would you tell young writers? Well, most of them are verbose. And yeah. so one of the things I tell them is go read Hemingway. Read Heels Like White Elephants because you'll see how you can get across the very same ideas with few words. And they're powerful words. And you notice Hemingway doesn't use a lot of adjectives and adverbs. So he's got strong nouns and verbs in there. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing I tell them. And to read good stuff. And then you we mean, talk about what that write, might mean. You mean don't write like Faulkner? Yeah. Well, now, hey, I love Faulkner. <laughs> but just to give them the exercise, and, because they're, they're already writing these, yeah. these uh, purple prose sentences and, and right. sentimental scenes and melodramatic scenes. And I, I want them to know how to pare it down and get to the essence. And, Miriam, you mentioned something about you know, writers not getting rich. And um, sometimes it feels, I think, to writers like they're all alone in the world, you know, that uh, they're writing but nobody's reading or listening. I mean, what kind of encouragement do you give to young writers? Um, well, I just say you have to want to do it. You mm-hmm. have to want to do it. And mm-hmm. uh, if you think you're going to suddenly be successful, I was not suddenly successful. Mm-hmm. It took me to be old to get successful. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's, uh, you, you, you choose it. You choose it. No one chooses it for you. What kind of encouragement do you give to young writers, Christy? Keep doing it. Mm. Be be prepared to write a lot of crap. Mm. And write that, that, write that uh, shitty verse, first draft. That's right, Anna yeah. Mont. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, look, um, this has been great. Y'all, your work's out there. It's published. People have been reading it, and they and they like it. This has been a lot of fun. I guess I want to ask one last Queen question, you know. Uh, I guess to Christy, you know, what, what do you think Queen's legacy is to the uh, to the literary world since you've combined them with? Oh them goodness, with, that's you know? a tough one. Well, yeah. I, I think uh, songs like Bohemian Rhapsody are literary. Yeah. There's so many elements to that song, so many interesting lyrics, and a song like Killer Queen is it's so Freddie. It's almost no coward. The lyrics are so clever. So um, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's my answer. All right, well, you were the champions today, and you did rock some folks. Uh, before we leave, um, let's talk about uh, how you find your writing. Uh, Miriam, do you have a website people can check I you do. out at? I com. People may not know how to spell Miriam, which is M-I-R-I-A-M. Okay, and that'll be in the show notes as well on the website, so I'll try not to misspell it. Okay. Uh, Christy, how about you? Well, the Freddie Mercury piece I read is it was condensed for right. for this podcast. So if people want to read the whole essay, then it, it was published in Main Street Rag in their October 2018 issue, which was before the movie came out. So you can go to Main Street Rag's website and order mm-hmm. it there. Mm-hmm. And as far as North Carolina Literary Review, how do people find them? They have a website. They yeah. do. Go to nclr.ecu.edu, and you can subscribe via the website. You can read the online open access issue. Miriam's story is in there. Um, you can learn more about the writing contest that, that we manage, such as the Doris Betts contest. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also do the James Applewhite Poetry Prize and the Alex Albright Creative Nonfiction Prize. So go to the website and, and find out about all these things and, and submit. Well, great. Uh, Christy, I want to thank you for being a proponent uh, of that uh, crazy little thing called love, no matter what your <laughs> sexual persuasion. That's and, right. Uh, and uh, Miriam, I want to thank you for keeping your butt in the chair for the time it took to get, uh, <laughs> to get these things out. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Lance. Yeah. Yes, yeah. thank this, you. This has right. been fun. Good. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. In next week's episode, we meet Catherine Schwilly, author of What Luck This Life, a story about life on the ground following the Space Shuttle Columbia disaster. In this engaging literary work, the fictional town of Kaiser, Texas, becomes a central character in the novel when the Space Shuttle debris rains down on it from high. Stories told through complex lives of normal people His choices sometimes feel like an echo of the chaos visited upon them from a place outside their normal space. If you liked our show, please tell your friends, and please leave a review on Apple Podcast. Reviews are like the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, on Apple Podcast, or wherever you like to get your podcast. Our social media links, if you're into that sort of thing, are at our website, charlottereaderpodcast.com. If you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, you can email us at our contact page on the website. And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. If you sign up for our email list at our website, thank you for that, we will give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte 
Readers Podcast.